Hello, and thanks for joining us for another episode of The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America, where each episode we bring you a fresh and insightful interview featuring one of the film industry's top directors, conducted by one of their peers. You can subscribe to our podcast on Google Play Music, iTunes, Stitcher, or on our SoundCloud page at soundcloud.com slash the director's cut. And if you're enjoying the director's cut, please take a moment to like, share, or comment. We love hearing your feedback. This episode takes us behind the scenes of director Matt Ruskin's new film, Crown Heights. Adapted from a segment of This American Life, the film tells the amazing true story of Colin Warner, a Trinidadian immigrant wrongfully convicted of murder as a teenager in 1980s Brooklyn. Convinced of his innocence, Colin's childhood friend Carl King spends the next two decades fighting for Colin's freedom and exposing the injustice of his incarceration. In addition to Crown Heights, which earned a Grand Jury Prize nomination and received the Audience Award at the 2017 Sundance Film Festival, Mr. Ruskin's credits include the feature film Booster and the documentaries The Hip Hop Project and Glen of the Downs. Following a recent screening of the film at the DGA Theatre in Los Angeles, Mr. Ruskin sat down with director Gavin O'Connor to discuss the making of Crown Heights. During their conversation, Mr. Ruskin talks about the dozens of hours of interviews he conducted with the people at the center of the story, the influence that Michael Mann's films had on portraying the prison, and the careful balance between his roles as lead producer and director on the project. So we just met. Hey, Matt. How you doing? All right. Um, I guess the first question, uh, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm, this is like subject matter that's really important to me and, and, and personal to me, and I've followed for a long time, so when I got this call and heard about your movie, I was really um, proud to be asked to do this. My first question is, how did you get, where, where did the, how do you know about the story, and then how did you get Colin to, to trust you with it? Yeah, well, first I just want to thank you guys for coming, um, and I want to thank you for doing this. I've looked up to you as a filmmaker for a lot of years, so I appreciate it. Um, I first heard Colin and Carl's story on a, a documentary radio show called This American Life, um, they're incredible storytellers and I try to listen to everything that they do and they did a full hour about Colin and Carl's story and it was mostly interviews with with the guys and just hearing them talk about their experience what they had been through and really how they came through all of it um, just floored me I was totally blown away so you know I as a filmmaker I, I I didn't I wasn't setting out to make a movie about the criminal justice system this story just um, I heard it driving one day and couldn't get it out of my head. Um, and so it, it was um, produced by a journalist who was working at 60 Minutes at the time. And so I tracked her down and I wanted to be like the first filmmaker to get to them. Um, and so she introduced me to Colin and Carl. And when I started talking with them, I realized that I heard a, a rerun of the episode five years after it had originally come out. Um, and they had initially, so in 2005, they optioned it to a studio, never scripted it. Another studio picked it up, never scripted it. And then, you know, 2010, 2011, I came around and um, 
you know, I was this independent filmmaker living in Brooklyn at the time. And so I represented like the opposite end of the spectrum. And so at that point, I think they were sort of tired of, of, you know, the avenues that didn't work out and were willing to, to take a chance on me. It's just interesting as an artistically, like when you get infected by a story. So I'm just like, why that story when you heard it, but you couldn't, it got like in your bloodstream. Like, what was it about the stories? Is the idea that's, because what I thought you did so beautifully was it's a social issue movie, but you didn't make it about a social issue. It was such a human story and it was so subjective the way you handled it about a man. And I love movies when I call them, it's not fair, those it's not fair movies. But what, what was it when you heard it that you were the dog with a bone? Yeah, um, you know, I, I had just finished a, the first narrative film I ever directed. I made this movie for $50,000 with some friends of mine. And we basically just like set a date on a calendar to make a movie. And so the script was, you know, we wrote the script as quickly as possible to back into that date. And I left that process really realizing that there's no such thing as a quick and easy little movie, no matter how small. And I really wanted to care about whatever I did next. Um, so that from a filmmaker, that that was my perspective. But just hearing, you know, for Colin Warner to spend 21 years in prison, you know, being ripped out of his life as a kid who was still, you know, figuring out who he was in the world and an immigrant at that um, to to mature the way that he did in one of the harshest environments imaginable and to come out of that, you know, with his humanity and his dignity. But you know, and, and without bitterness or spite, to me, I just, it's, it just sounded superhuman, you know, um, and it floored me. Um, and then for, for, for Carl to decide that, you know, when everybody else gave up, that he couldn't accept living in a world where an innocent guy could be left to die in prison. Um, and so that, you know, propelled him. And I think the other piece of it for him was this broader sense of injustice that, you know, they had idealized America and New York City as this you know, sort of center of the universe culturally in terms of music and the pop culture that, that they were so influenced by in the islands. Um, and this shattered that perception of, of the sort of promise of, of coming to, to New York and to the United States and, and to just see how they, you know, did this themselves, you know, came through it, but also, you know, there's no outside saviors. This is really, um, you know, a really persistent, devoted friend and a story of an extraordinary friendship. And so it just had all those elements. And, and like what you're saying, you know, it was really important for me, uh, to not kind of hit people over the head with the issue. When I, as a viewer, when I go see films, um, that are issue driven and I feel like I'm being told how to feel and told what to think, I shut down. Um, and I feel like, you know, it's pretty black and white what happened to him here. And I don't need to kind of put anything else on it. Just trying to convey their story in the most authentic way um, would, you know, provide people with all they needed to draw their own commentary. So let's start with the, your process. Um, you, you write a script. Were they involved? Was it this sort of anthropological thing where you were they were involved in answering questions and 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 filling in a lot of the blanks that I'm I'm assuming weren't covered in the in the in the program? Yeah, no, a hundred percent. So I approached it initially kind of like a documentary where I went and just recorded dozens of hours of interviews, and everybody that was still around um, were really sort of um, 
open to participating in, in the development of the film. So um, both the lawyers, the trial lawyer and the appellate lawyer, uh, spent hours with me talking about their experience and sharing whatever files they had. And I even I got to meet um, the witness who sort of the the last witness who um, really is a turning point for them in, in their investigation. I spent a bunch of time with him and um, and then obviously Colin and Carl. And so um, there was just this huge sort of information gathering process. And then as I was writing, I would just call them up and we would talk for, you know, a couple hours if I had a question about any sort of specific aspect of the story. And then, you know, the the other thing is a lot of the transcripts from the trial are in the film. So um, the testimony of the, the child eyewitness and all that comes right from the trial transcripts. And the parole hearing as well is it's a, it's verbatim from the um, the hearing itself. And that was this thing I kept coming up against with this was that, you know, you often hear about people embellishing true stories to make it a better movie. And for me, there was like so much crazy stuff I had to pare back. And like, you know, the parole hearing is an example of that where he's telling them to look up words in the dictionary. It kind of came across to me as over the top writing if I made that up. Um, and so it's like this balance of, you know, what to leave in and, and what would potentially alienate audiences. But did you as a writer, did you, were there certain things where, um, because it's not a documentary, where you took the spirit of the truth and sort of massaged it into something that made it more cinematic? Yeah, I mean, you know, all the scenes where it was, the scenes were just, you know, me trying to convey what were the sort of, um, you know, most important moments for them in, in this process and the the things that sort of define different periods of this struggle for them or, you know, turning points in their approach and then just trying to dramatize that. Um, and then there's obviously some liberties that we had to take. The very few, but the biggest one is that um, the lawyer that screws them over in the middle is really a composite of like three different lawyers who let them down in different ways. So you you have a screenplay, and now you you know it's climbing Mount Everest here to get a movie made. So how, so what was the what was your process from there to putting the financing together and? Yeah, so I basically just went to everybody that you think <laughs> you know. And I would always tell Colin and Carl, like, we just need one person to say yes. Um, but it was just, it was a long process of just um, going out to everybody who you, you know, you would think would um, be interested in telling a story like this. And ultimately, um, I started off with one company who was um, shooting all their films in Louisiana. Um, and I had negotiated, like, enough time to shoot exteriors in New York that I felt like it could work. And then I met a, you know, as things become more real, um, other people get more interested is what I've learned. So, you know, when there was sort of the threat of it happening this way, another company was interested in in taking the project to New York. And that was a company we ultimately ended up working with. So it wasn't privately financed? It was it was, it was financed from uh, a, 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 new, a production film company. Yeah, but it, it was a, new, a, a group of guys who were sort of, you know, newer to to this, they had produced a couple of movies and and wanted to um, make films that had you know value beyond just entertainment. Gotcha. And then from there, well, um, what was your casting process like? 
Um, so the one of the sort of silver linings of, of making a movie on a shoestring budget is that you don't get bogged down in these conversations about box office and you know foreign value. Um, so we were really free to cast who we thought were the best actors to to portray these people. Um, so I met uh, Keith Stanfield and Namdi Asamoa, and I just kind of became convinced they were the right people for the leads. And then um, I begged this incredible casting director named Avi Kaufman to do it. And she's she has a reputation. She obviously does huge films, um, but she also takes on smaller films that she cares about. So she lended a lot of credibility to the um, to the the production, but also was able to get um, you know answers from people quickly. And she just has an incredible knowledge of of actors, particularly in New York. Yeah. So she introduced us to people like Bill Camp and Nestor Carbonell, um, who you know are just among the most talented people. Yeah. Um, so that, that was really the process with her. So you shot the entire film in New York? Yeah, a hundred percent. And then, and then, what about did you? Have to, I'm assuming you had to crew up in New York. All your keys were from New York. Yeah, yeah um, it's it's a really busy time in New York, yeah. so it was uh, it was a challenge. But there was, you know, like the cinematographer Ben Cutchins is an incredibly talented guy who works on much bigger things. But you know, he's an old friend of mine, so I, I roped him in, um, you know, through in a personal way, and and tried to do that as much as possible. Just called in favors and. Um, was able to pull together an incredible group of people. That the other thing is that you know these films are really hard to get made, but once you do get them past a certain point, um, I found with this, you know, people came to the table um, because they felt like this was a story that needed to be told. So it ended up attracting a really devoted group of people um, who were there, you know, for reasons beyond just another job. And what did so? What did you got in regard to the visual style of the movie? How did that come about? What were the conversations and research and things like that that evolved into what we saw? Yeah, um, you know, for me, it was really like just trying to tell the story in a really authentic way. Um, and so there's a couple of different films, but mostly we looked at a couple movies um, by Michael Mann, um, The Insider, um, which is obviously a much bigger movie, and Ali, um, because he just, he has this incredible ability to... Um, kind of make you feel like there's a you're there like you're in the room there's a cinema verite aspect to everything he does but simultaneously there are these like really um you know e extraordinary cinematic experiences and and so just try sort of aspiring to that balance of um trying to find you know a cinematic language for the film but also trying to keep people really rooted um, in the world, you know, both feet on the ground in the world they were living in. Yeah. And what about uh, rehearsals? Yeah, I mean, I, I we were kind of dancing around people's schedules, so um, I would take as much as I could get. So with some of the people with Namdi and the woman that plays his, his wife, I was able to get them for a full week. Um, and I really, you know, was able to just sort of work out a lot of kinks it's really like a discovery process you know you just kind of talk about what's on the page and yeah. um i just heard recently a director talking about actually blocking in rehearsals which i haven't done um but having been through this experience it made me kind of want to approach it that way um just because there's i feel like you could save so much time when you go to shoot if you've already had those conversations about 
the sort of physicality of a scene. Um, and then with with Keith and, and um, some of the other actors, it was much more limited to just a couple of days. You know, what I try to do is um, before, I try to get to every set before I shoot with my actors wow. and work our way around and understand the physical space and, and never really put the scene up where you're performing it because you want to kind of um, exhaust them or, but just to, so you, so you're not, because especially with the limitations and the constraints that you must have had with time, that's always a scary thing. And you want to spend your days performing, not. Yeah. A hundred percent. And, you know, there's something like 30 locations in this film. Um, and so, you know, because of the scope of it, we were always trying to figure out, you know, how to find multiple environments in one physical location. Um, and yeah, one of the sort of biggest anxieties every day was like, what is going to go wrong in that initial <laughs> discovery process of translating what's on the page to a bunch of people in the physical space? Um, so, you know, that, that to me sounds like something that's invaluable. Yeah. So, uh, what was, uh, what did you use for the, What was a prison? How did you find, cause prisons are not easy to find in New York. Yeah. It's tough in New York. Prisons are like a moving target. You know, one of the, um, big prisons that we scouted, um, shut down the month we wanted to go shoot. So because of an incident, um, and then, which, another, one, which one was that? Uh, East Meadow, Long Island. Um, somebody shot a an anti-law enforcement rap video there and the county commissioner got pissed off and shut down <laughs> filming. And then um, Rikers was open for a month and then there was, um, you know, like a violent incident and so they shut it down for filming. Um, but there's a jail in Queens that's fairly consistently open um, and we shoot there on the weekends because it's used primarily to house people on their way to court. So Saturdays and Sundays, there's usually no inmates at that jail facility. Uh, and it's an older New York facility, so it um, we were able to shoot a bunch of the early Rikers Island locations there. That was for your, uh, your interiors? Yeah. Um, and then there was a, a prison that was recently decommissioned in um, Staten Island uh, that we shot at, but it was like they uh, a film company was buying it for stages, um, but they hadn't like completed the deal. So there was no electricity, no running water. Um, and we were out in this shooting nights in this, in this prison that was basically abandoned. Um, and then there was just sort of creating prison environments in other spaces. Um, uh, there's this old hospital in Queens where the basement has these incredible green tiles and it looks like, you know, an old state institution, which it is. And once you put, you know, bars in the hallways, and phones on the walls, it, it felt very much like a, a prison. Right. And then you're shooting three other scenes in the same location uh, yeah. where you're supposed to be in different locations. Yeah, exactly. And you just, yeah, you're just, you're, you're an acrobat. Yeah, I think in that hospital, we shot the police precinct from the 1980s, um, the lie detector test in the third act of the film, the parole hearing, and then all the prison phones and hallway stuff. You guys did a great job, even with the exteriors. And I can see some of the stuff, the way you're framing certain shots, you're obviously avoiding things. But you guys did a great job. In New York, to, to shoot New York in 1980 is not easy to do anymore. The, the city is just a different city. So I thought you guys did a really wonderful job of the ver that, that type of verisimilitude, which is not easy to do. 
Yeah, there was a lot of like looking on maps for streets that dead end so yeah. that you'd have a much more sort of limited <laughs> yeah. view. Right. And then it was just like we would draw these little charts of like how do you um, fill three city blocks with, you know, the five picture cars that our budget allowed. So there was a lot of like swinging things around and, and you know, um, clearing cars rather than replacing them a lot of the time you know it's so funny about you know, like because I, I i was there once doing what you did and and um and i remember i had a similar a similar experience in regard to made a movie shot in a shot and it was 24 days and how many days you have yeah we had 25 25 days and then you know you have the sundance experience the experience which is the ultimate experience for a filmmaker and i remember thinking back then like it's never going to be, it will never be like this again because it's so pure and every decision you're making is based entirely on an artistic decision because it's not about getting an actor who's worth whatever they're worth in the algorithm of a, you know, South American calculus. You, you know what I mean? So right. it, it's, 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 so there's such a beauty to it. And then, but the other thing about it is, when I hear you talk about it, is it doesn't matter if it's that or you make a movie for forty or a hundred million. It's it's the same exact. You're still the the hurdles are different, the acrobats are different. You get turned into a pretzel a little bit of a different way, but you're making a movie. It's just all the same thing. You're telling a story. Yeah, I I wish you didn't tell me that, but um, <laughs> I I all you know I hear that that yeah everybody you know you always feel like you don't have enough time or money. Um, and I, you know, I really felt like the time constraints on this were the biggest challenge just because of the, the scope of the film. Um, and so it was really, a, a, a balancing act trying to give, you know, actors a space to work and trying to sort of shoot things how we wanted to, um, but then not sort of rob that from another scene later in the day or later in the week. Um, and being the you know one of the lead producers on this, um, you know I it, the only person I could go sort of fight with at the end of the day was myself. So um, there there was a lot of sort of keeping the big picture in mind. And, and yeah, but you're you're on the if, as a lead producer, you're on the firing line. Then that your financiers are coming to you at the end of every day or on weekends with the phone, whatever, and so that you don't have that insulation. That you, you, which is a luxury of having a producer who's sort of, you know, running interference. So that's a, that's an added stress to making a movie. Yeah, I think you know the way I felt it most was just um, I could never like abandon the pragmatic side of production for um, creative inspiration. <laughs> I would let that happen momentarily, but I could never go too far. Um, and so there was always just kind of trying to balance the bigger picture all the time um which re we really felt on this one it was it was really well run but it was every day was like the most demanding day on any other movie i had been on and i was really i just thought the crew was never going to speak to me again it wasn't it wasn't abusive but it was just really demanding and um, I was really happy to see like they all showed up at the rap party and it was a huge moment of relief for me that they felt they don't like, hate me. Yeah. They, they were all sort of proud of the work, which was great. You don't, can't really tell sometimes when you're in it. Did you go right from, so when you finished shooting, did you, did you just slide right into the post or was there any gap in between or did you have a whole plan to keep them moving? Um, no, we went, we started, um, fairly quickly. We had, 
because these films really live and die with the the film festival world, um, we ended up we shot the film in the fall, so we had a fair. We were always aiming for Sundance, so we had a fairly um, longer post. We had a longer window before our first deadline. Um, Wait, you shot? I mean, for the next year, right? Oh god. So the idea was that we would never, you know, we shot the film in October, November. We were never going to get it into Sundance or, um, you know, a festival that early that year. Um, so we had some breathing room in post, which was great because uh, it allowed me to work with a couple of different editors. And um, did so they give you that much time? Did they let you just keep cutting? No, there were, there was sort of a, we, we cut intensively for a couple of months and then we screened the film and we kind of took a break and just regrouped and then came up with a plan for the spring and I had a couple more months. You got back in the editing room. Yeah. Because the thing about, I always find about movies is that you, you at least for me, I can just edit forever and movies are over when someone says like, okay, you got to stop cutting now. It's, you need to, you need to put your hands up. So it's it's interesting if you have that much time. I have to imagine the director side who's like, oh, wow, I have a year to be cutting. This is awesome. Because it's the least expensive part of the process. You and an editor in a room. Yeah, and it's cheaper now. I mean, you know, yeah. when I started, Avid's were like $80,000 hardware-based system, and you can get it for 50 bucks a month now on your iMac. Um, but, yeah, you know, um, there was a bit of leeway there, I think, I grew to really appreciate deadlines um, and boundaries. Uh, <laughs> but this was, you know, it was really a luxury to be able to say, like, um, let's show the film to some people and then know, you know, know that we could then take another couple yeah, weeks to keep working yeah. rather than being like, you have three more days and then you're done, you yeah. know. Had you worked with your editor before or was it the first time, the, your original editor? Um, the, the first editor I had worked with before he and I had worked on documentary films together and he's just a really smart filmmaker. Um, and then later in the process, I got to work with Joe Hutching, who, um, he's cut, he's, you know, one of the most, yeah, he's, he cut JFK for Oliver Stone, born on the 4th of July. He's cut movies for Cameron Crowe and countless other people. So, just to be able to work with somebody with with that much experience, especially later in the process, was invaluable for me because I didn't know what I was looking at anymore. And a lot of the sort of things that, you know, you get hung up on in the edit are things that didn't work out perfectly. And so it's like a trade off, you know, and he's seen everything so many times before that, um, you know, I really trusted his instincts there um, because he just brings so much experience to the table. And then, so, and then, um, uh, just staying with the post-production process, how did you find your composer? Um, Mark, um, I saw a documentary that he did, um, for Werner Herzog and it, I was just really haunted by the score. It jumped out at me. Um, and then we met a couple of times and, and he sent me a couple batches of music that he had, that he had already made that he thought might be sort of right for the film, at least a starting point. And I just, I loved the stuff that he sent me. Um, so it, for me, it was a no-brainer. And then we, you know, and again, we had the benefit of time. So we were able to just sort of work in stages where he would send me batches of music. And then I would try them out and react to them. And then, you know, of course... Were, you temp, this, were you temp scoring it before that? Did you do a temp score? Yeah, you? it's, you know, I don't know if you have that experience, but like falling in love with the temp score is just, is tough. Um, so I was 
And I had been through that before, so I was trying to work in as much of his score as early as possible. Yeah. Um, it's great. It's a great feeling when you fall in love with score that you actually can use. Yeah, and you're always saying that it's like the composer. You're. It's like you have to top what I have, which is daunting for a composer because of. Uh, yeah, and, and score was a big thing because there's, you know, for a smaller movie, I wanted the score to feel um, bigger. Um, and we obviously didn't have the money to go record with an orchestra. Um, but I didn't want it to feel like a small little indie score. Um, and particularly with the scope of the film and the span of time and the gravity of it, I wanted something that um, would, you know, elevate it. Um, and he did a really incredible job of bringing in a variety of different sounds and, and sounds that you sometimes think of with, you know, bigger, much bigger movies. Um, and so I was really happy with the sort of balance there and how things sort of progressed as the film um, really kind of kicked into gear with yeah. the investigation. Yeah. All right, so then just walk us through your Sundance experience. So you submit, you submit it and you cross your fingers and hope that you get a response that's positive. Yeah, you just try to forget that yeah. you submitted because yeah. everything's riding on that basically. Um, but Sundance was great. You know, I was, I was really nervous about showing the film, but um, the audience response was incredible. And we were able to bring the real guys, Colin and Carl oh, wow. and, and Colin's Thank wife, you. Antoinette. And it was really, I think, incredibly moving for them to see how people responded to their story. It was so genuinely touched by them and, and really just interested that, that people cared. Um, so that was really rewarding um, to see that. Um, and I, you know, before we went to Sundance, I, I wanted Colin to see the movie. Um, so I sent him a link just... I thought it would be, you know, odd to see yourself, you know, something like this depicted in a film, period. But especially, you know, in a room full of 400 people, I didn't want that to be the, the first time that um, he saw it. I would it. be terrified. I would, that's got to be the most terrifying thing to have to show. I mean, I have to imagine if there's one person you want to love the movie, it's him. Yeah, no, I was really nervous about showing it to him. And, of course, his opinion, you yeah. know, meant more to me than anyone's. Um, and so he... He watched the film and he called me up and and he was kind of taken aback and he said, you know, there's just uh, like this, there's something that's just off, you know? And so my heart sank and I was like, man, I worked so hard to try and get it right, you know? And so, I, and I asked him, I really wanted to know. And he said, he said, you know that scene when, when Carl takes my picture for the press in the visiting room, like you would never be allowed to do that there. You'd have to do that in another room. And I, I was like, all right, I can live with that. If that's yeah. the biggest complaint, like, we're doing all right. Creative license yeah. there. He's, he's, he's one of the few people that's actually going to know that that isn't honest. So what do you? So so um. So what's your plans now? Do you have another movie that you've written, or do you have? Do you know what you want to do next? Or um. So I I just got involved with a script written by a woman named Latoya Morgan called Carried by Six, and it's um, it's a really different from this, but it it's a thriller set on the. Mexico border in a, a small town in Texas uh, about a female cop who basically becomes the sort of last line of defense um, against these warring drug cartels in her town. Um, and it's just really wonderfully written characters. And um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great thriller, but there's a lot of substance to it as well. So I'm really excited about that. So you're open now to not only writing your own stuff, if something comes your way that you have an emotional connection to, 
Yeah, hundred percent. I would love to just get back out there and make another film. Oh, great, man. Well, I look forward to your next movie. It was a beautiful, beautiful job. So thank you so much. Thank you. Appreciate yeah. it. Thank you, everyone. Big congratulations, man. Of course. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q and A. You can check out past episodes of the Director's Cut wherever you listen to podcasts, or on our website at dga.org slash podcast. Also, if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe so you won't miss an episode. If you're enjoying the podcast, please like, share, and leave us a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. Thanks again for listening, and have a great week. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally. 